Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and of Jacob, how is it that we who have unclean hands and an unclean heart, how is it that we can assemble into your holy presence, the presence of the thrice holy God this morning? It is only in and through that name which is above all other names, in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can come. It is coming not pleading our own merits, our own worthiness, but we come pleading and being covered this morning in his precious, holy and pure blood. And we pray, Father, that as your word is open before us, that we would be mindful of our helpless and hopeless condition before you, a holy God. And we do pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand, that we would be attentive to the word spoken this morning. May it be not as if a man is speaking, but may it be as if you are speaking to us this day. We pray that you would unstop our ears this morning. We pray for those unable to be here that you would bless them. For those who are laid up in beds of sickness, we pray that they would draw near to you and that you would draw near to them. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would guide us and direct our thoughts in this time before us this day and that our minds would be fixed upon Christ as the only Saviour as man and we pray that he would receive all of the glory for we ask this in his name. Amen. We return this morning to the book of Jonah in chapter 1. You might be thinking, well, this is getting a bit tedious and this morning's sermon is somewhat a little bit similar to last week. That's because of really my shortcomings. That is because I so quickly forget what has come before. So forgive me if it's drudgery for you this morning as we continue to look at this passage Our eyes will be opened by the grace of God to verses 4 to 16 this morning of Jonah chapter 1. And I hope that as we work through these verses that it's not a mystery to you where I'm heading with this. I hope that you can see clearly what is taking place here. You know, I read long ago that one of the worst things that a preacher can hear after a sermon is, I would have never got that from this passage. I hope that you don't feel this way this morning as you speak with me afterwards. But my sermon title this morning, as part of the series of Jonah the Preacher on the Run, sermon title is Jonah the Not-So-Great Escape. Some of you who are of a similar age to me or perhaps older will remember that Hollywood movie based upon uh, true accounts of Uh, prisoners of war in World War II escaping from their camp. But this isn't anything like the Hollywood story. This isn't anything like that this morning. Here we have Jonah, the not-so-great escape. Remember last week we find in the opening verses that God has called Jonah to be a prophet and to go to that great city, Nineveh, that was a foreign land and that he's to prophesy that God will destroy them. And then we see Jonah heading in the opposite direction and running away from his responsibility and his calling and boarding a ship to go to Tarshish, to flee from the calling that God had put upon him. 
So here we come to these passages and we have Jonah, the not-so-great escape, and under our first heading this morning, I have called it this, God is not a watchmaker. God is not a watchmaker. What do I mean by that? You see, there's a view by deists and those who would say that there is a God, that God, their version of God, is a watchmaker. That is, what God did before time began was put all of the components together for life. That he put everything together like a watchmaker may do, all of the intricate details into that watch, that God did something similar with you and me and with all of creation. And what he did, he put all of these things together and then he wound up the great spring behind it all and he pushed the button and it started. And then he stepped back and he just watches from a distance. That the God of the deists and the God of so many religions today is purely a God who watches on from a distance. He doesn't enter into his creation. He doesn't take part in his creation other than to create it. And this is the view of so much of the world today. That is, that God is just off in the distance. That he's not imminent, that he's purely transcendent and that his transcendence doesn't ultimately control the earth. Now I have to make another confession this morning. Sometimes when I'm driving along in my car, I spend a lot of time in the car. I push the preset buttons on the radio and I flick through all radio stations and I have to confess that I sometimes sing along. I'm not sure if you find yourself doing this. It sometimes isn't it interesting how we can know a song for so long but not really know the words. We can be driving along and we can be singing perhaps the chorus, but we don't actually know what the singer is singing about. And then one day we'll be driving along singing, or perhaps you sing in the shower, and one day it will dawn on you what the person is singing about. Some of us get the words completely wrong, we don't really care about it, but I'm sure that what I find myself guilty of, you've found yourself guilty of also. But one day I was driving along and a song came on the radio and many of you will know this song, uh, sang by Bette Midler, and that is this song that God is watching us from a distance. She has this view that God is off far away and he is watching all of us live our lives and he has seen all these things unfolded. That's the view that the deists have. That's the view that God is a watchmaker. He's not entered into relationship with anyone. He's purely off in the distance and he's watching everything unfold. And really he's powerless. Do you want to know one of the greatest lies that gets told by our media constantly? It's this. And you'll see the so-called Cardinal George Pell saying these sorts of things himself, that the God of the Christians is the same God as the God of the Jews, who is the same God as the God of Islam. Rubbish. Mr. Pell has not read scripture. Mr. Pell has not read the Quran at any level, because what he will find out is that our gods are opposing that their God is not a God at all. He's the God of the deists, the one who's off, who's just looking upon the world. Yes, he created it, but now he has no influence. He's a shy God. 
He's a recluse. I'm sorry, Cardinal Pell. I reject this view. This is the view that is born in hell of God. The God who is off, who is not imminent, is false. My God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is the God who is not a watchmaker. He's the God who is both transcendent and imminent. I know we can have this view sometimes that God doesn't understand what I'm going through. That God is just off doing his thing and I'm completely separate, but it's wrong. Jonah, I believe, perhaps for a few minutes of his irrational thought, started thinking something similarly. That he thought that God has called him to do this thing and that he can run away and he can get away with this. But here we see the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob intervening. Verse 4. Remember, Jonah has boarded a ship to flee from God's calling upon him. Verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great mighty wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. You see, not purely a transcendent God. Here God becomes imminent upon Jonah and upon those in the ship. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean? That is, what are you doing? Arise, get up, sleeper. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Here we see God intervening. All of a sudden, Jonah thinks he's going in the opposite direction and he thinks he's avoiding the calling of God. And the God who all of a sudden he thinks is merely transcendent, all of a sudden God becomes imminent and a reality to him through creation. We read part of the book of Job and we see God having a dialogue with this man Job and we see God asking Job, where were you during these things? If you think you are so clever and you think you are like me, How did this take place? How did these things happen? There we saw God revealing not only his creation, but his power over creation. That God has said, this far the waves will come and no further. And here he's allowed Jonah to run in the opposite direction and to board the ship. He's provided Jonah the means to do this and then... He intervenes. He says, no, Jonah, I'm in control of this situation. You may think that you're running away, but it's not going to happen your way. So Jonah's great escape is destroyed. God wasn't off in the distance, somewhere in the heavens, being a recluse. He wasn't thinking, oh, well, this is great. Everything's going well. I just sit back and watch it happen like a spectator. No. God had raised up Jonah for a purpose of prophesying, and that purpose 
was not going to fail. God would have Jonah accomplish what he wanted him to accomplish. Whether or not Jonah believed it or would even do it, God would make it happen. So God raises up the wind to cause the waves to increase. And imagine being those men on that boat and being in that situation, all of a sudden, the, the, the sea that was quite calm, all of a sudden, there's a massive storm upon them. And it's quite interesting that these men recognise that this is the work of an almighty God. Now, they believe that there are many gods. And we're told that they go down while Jonah sleeps and that they awaken him so that he may call upon his God. Why? Because their gods are not powerful. They've created gods in their own images and so therefore their God is not all-powerful. But perhaps another man's God is. Perhaps the God of Jonah is not purely transcendent. Perhaps Jonah's God is not just off in the distance. Perhaps he can do something. Isn't it quite amazing sometimes when the world looks on that sometimes they have these insights even for the Christian? I'm not saying where to look look to the world for these things, but isn't it interesting sometimes that non-believers, those who are really the enemies of God and of Christ, actually have insights and can see things that even Christians can't. It's quite interesting. I remember a man telling me one day who I'd worked with for several years that he, and forgive me if I've told you this story before, but he told me that him and his wife went out to dinner with some missionaries the night before. And I was quite interested in this and he didn't seem all that interested and he didn't seem very positive. And, and he said to me, he said, John, he said, um, they're not Christians. Now, I found this quite fascinating considering this man didn't know Christ in any way, shape or form. He'd only been to Sunday school and he was in fact a Freemason. But he said, no, no, they, these these people aren't Christians. I said, how do you know? He said, well, they're nothing like you. I said, well, I don't think I'm the measuring stick. He said, no, 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 no. He said, they don't speak like you. I said, what, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, we were there having dinner with them and they didn't mention about Christ. They didn't talk about these things. They, they talked about their missionary work as purely a business. That, that they could change from various mission groups and whoever was going to give them the most and they'd go with that group and nothing was said about Jesus. I said, oh, is that right? And he said, no. He said, um, it's very rare that I stand around and talk to you before too long before you start talking about religion. He said, these people weren't interested. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That the world looks on and that sometimes they have these insights. Even though they're strangers to Christ, they can see phonies. There's one thing the world hates more than a true Christian, and that is a religious phony. They really do. They call me a nutbag and a nutcase and an extremist and all these sorts of things because I stand up for the truth. But at some level they're happy to accept that because they know where they stand. But then, if I'm a religious phony and I've found out they hate that far more. 
But here Jonah is found out by men who are null and void of salvation. They recognise that perhaps another worships a God who is in control of everything. And so when the captain comes down in this ship and finds Jonah asleep, he wants him to wake up and to cry out to God. First of all, before we get to this point in a sense, there's the casting of lots in verse 7. And they said to one another, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now people say, well, this is merely chance. This is luck that this has taken place. But the word of God tells us in the book of Proverbs in chapter 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So here Jonah was in the bowels of the ship, thinking he's running in the wrong direction, he's getting away with it. They wake him up, they decide to do something that appears to be pure chance, but they actually have some sort of faith in this thing. And the lot falls upon Jonah. It wasn't by chance that that lot fell upon Jonah. Because now we come to my second point this morning. The game is up. Jonah running away, all of a sudden, is stopped. If you glance to verse 8. Then they said to him, that is the mariners, those who were on the ship, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? See, Jonah thinks he's getting away with it. He really did. He thought, I've avoided my calling. I've avoided what God wanted me to do. God has allowed me to do these things and now I'm going in the other direction. Things are looking up for me. Australians would say, I've been lucky. And so then they, they awaken Jonah, they cast lots, and the game is up for Jonah. All of a sudden, all eyes are upon him. He can't avoid the situation now. He can't run away from the situation like he did and flee to another ship. It's impossible for him now. All of a sudden, all eyes are upon him. Why? Well, it's because that's exactly where God wanted him to be. It wasn't by chance or by accident that he'd come to be on this particular ship with these particular men who had some sort of faith in gods that didn't exist, all of a sudden when the lot was cast in the lap and when it falls upon Jonah, their eyes are upon him and now he must do what? Just go back to sleep? No. No, now he must prophesy to these men. Now he must speak the truth because the game is up. It's over. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is not a watchmaker. And he has now intervened. He's intervened in the wind and in the waves, and now he's intervened as the lot was cast into the lap. And all of a sudden, the game is up for Jonah. Jonah must do now what God has called him to do. 
And what does he say in verse 9? He says to them, I am a Hebrew, that is, I am a Jew, and I fear the Lord, that is, the living God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. What has God led Jonah to do? To profess and confess the truth. He thinks he's avoiding doing God's work, but he's not. He realises that the game is up and that the God who is living, the God who is transcendent and imminent, has impeded on his plans. And all of a sudden, there is a swift turnaround. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? You see how I said, sometimes the world looks on and they see things that the Christians don't see. All of a sudden, these men who worship false gods see what has taken place. Once the lot falls on Jonah, once they ask Jonah the right questions, he gives them truthful answers. And all of a sudden, they recognise what has taken place. They recognise that Jonah is running from God and that they are to be exceedingly afraid. You know, this is something that's not popular in churches today. That is the fear of God. It's not popular to have a God who is to be feared. He's not good for business. I hear ads on the radio and I see various websites and that is the church today is all-encompassing. We welcome everybody. Just come on in. We won't even talk about the fear of God any longer. Why? Because many of the people sitting in the pews don't believe that God is to be feared. Why? Because their God is a watchmaker. He's off in the distance, he's the God who they've created, and he's not going to intercede in their lives. And then anything that happens is merely chance or luck. You don't have to look very far in our nation to find this. What do we call ourselves? The colloquial term, the lucky country. What nonsense. Why do we call ourselves this? Because we've created a God who is not transcendent and imminent. Many of people living in this nation are happy to have a God who is off in the distance. The God who has just set everything in motion but does not intercede. But there was no luck here. These men feared the living God because he had interceded. When Jonah prophesies and he says who he is, this is a prophecy. Confession of the living God is a prophecy. And here it is. Jonah has to say this. He has no option. It's all over. He knows it is. And these men fear God. The scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you are here today and you do not fear the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, you are a fool and you are heading to hell. I know that's not popular. There's many reasons why I'm not invited back to churches and that is one of them. Because they've created a small God who is not in control of anything. But our God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Blessed Trinity, is in control of everything and is to be feared. These men recognised at that moment when God interceded that they were to fear God. Why? Because he was not false like their gods. They were crying out to their gods and nothing was happening. Absolutely nothing. They could do whatever they liked, but their gods were not going to intercede. Why? Because they were dead. 
They were gods of their own creation, gods of their own making. They may have been able to carve out nice pillars and give them heads and give them ears and give them eyes and mouths, but what does Jeremiah prophesy? He says that your gods have eyes but they do not see, mouths but they do not speak, ears but they do not hear. These are the gods that they have created. They were false gods. They could not do a thing. They were dumb. But these men, by the grace of God, and through the prophecy of Jonah, all of a sudden fear the living God. And they cry out to him and they say, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. You can imagine them asking him, why have you done this? Because all of a sudden it's affected them. All of a sudden the gods that they have created who are just off in the distance, that are false, all of a sudden the living God has come upon them. And they fear him because he has acted. And they recognise that his actions are because of this man. And they ask him, why have you done this to us? What's the purpose of this? And he says to them, verse 11, when they ask him, what shall we do that the sea may be calm? He continues on, he says to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. This is something that every Christian will face. I'm not talking about getting in a ship and running from God. Don't think I'm that foolish. No, it's something that everyone who is born again will face. That is God interceding, stopping you and forcing you to repent. I know that's not popular either, that God actually is the one who grants repentance, but it's what Scripture teaches. You cannot repent in and of yourself. All you will merely do is, as we may say, turn over a new leaf. You may leave this place this morning and you will say, I'm not going to sin against God again. I'm not going to do that. And it will last probably about five seconds. Because if your repentance is not of God, it is false. God forced Jonah to repent. He repented with his mouth. Here you see that he tells these men, the only way that you can pacify the living God is by punishing me by disciplining me because I have done this thing. Now, God may not intervene in your life in exactly the same manner, but he will cause you to repent. He's the one who must grant repentance, otherwise it's not anything to do with him. Here he causes Jonah to repent with his mouth and he causes repentance physically. Jonah has to confess that the only way for this to stop is for me to be dealt with. Imagine being Jonah in this situation. You're fleeing from God. You think you're getting away with it. And then all of a sudden God intervenes and now physical repentance will take place, not just with your mouth. Imagine being able to confess that. You've seen or maybe read accounts of martyrs down through the ages. There's one famous martyr who was a bishop in the Church of England who signed a recantation. 
That is, that he had declared before that the Pope of Rome was the Antichrist and that the Mass was an abomination and that purely the bread and the wine were just that. The transubstantiation were false. And all of a sudden, they gave him an ultimatum. Either you recant or we will kill you. We will burn you at the stake. And you know what he did at first? He recanted. He signed a recantation and he said, forget about it. But then all of a sudden in that man's life, when he's before all of these dignitaries and all these important people who think he has recanted, all of a sudden God through the Holy Spirit intervenes and causes that man to be able to stand up and say, well, I will put this hand into the fire first because I declare that the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist and that the Mass is an abomination and this hand that signed the recantation will be burnt first. All of a sudden in that man's life, God intervened and reminded him of whom he was in Christ and that you have not to fear man who can destroy the flesh, but you have to fear God who you have to deal with. And all of a sudden he could say, forget about what these people think about me, now I must stand for the truth. And this is similar in a sense with Jonah. All of a sudden he knows the game is up and all of a sudden God causes him to speak the truth and to act like he should. So we come to the closing heading this morning. Jonah, not my will. Verse 12 onwards. When he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he would have thought it was certain death just as the bishop who stood before the council and who said that he declared the Pope of Rome to be the Antichrist and the mass, the mass to be an abomination, he knew that that was going to lead to certain death. So Jonah here at this point believes that is what is taking place, that he's told these men to throw him into the sea and that this will be the end for him. But he must do this now. Because God has interjected, he must do it. He knows that God is imminent upon him. That the image that he had before this moment that God would let him do this was false. And we all fall into this at some point. I don't know how many times it happens to me. You can start to think that you're alone and that God is just allowing these things to happen and he's not even paying any attention. He is. Because when Jonah says this to these men... He's now been prepared to be obedient. He says he knows that the sea is raging because of him. It's because of his disobedience. Verse 13, Nevertheless the men rode harder to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea continued to rage even more. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and they said, We pray, O God, verse 14, do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood. You see, they recognise that they may have made a mistake here. They don't want to destroy Jonah. But they have a quandary. They have a quandary because they recognise that God has done this because of him. They don't want to destroy him by throwing him into the sea but they can't rage against God. 
They can't row the ship against God because the sea is continuing to rage. God is continuing to be a problem for them. And they recognise here that they can't go against him. When they cry out to God, they recognise God being sovereignly in control of everything that is happening. So what do they do? Verse 15, they pick up Jonah and they throw him into the sea. There's something here that every true Christian has experienced. And if you're here today and you are not saved, you may think, well, I know something of that. No, you don't. I pray that one day you will. If God intercedes and interjects in your life, and if God saves you by his grace, he will stop you in your tracks. You will not continue down the path that you were going on. Repentance is not only a change of mind in a sense or a change of heart, it's a change of actions also. That's why it's impossible to be a Christian, and I've met many of these people, who continue to lead their old lives. They've been misled by preachers and by well-meaning people and they've prayed a magical, mystical prayer and asked Jesus into their heart and then they believe that they're born again because that's what the person said and they wouldn't lie. And then all of a sudden they leave the service and they lead the exact same life. Or they may have turned over a new leaf in in some way. They might not have been as bad as, as they used to be, but they're going it alone. They think just merely changing one or two things is good enough. No, God wants all of you. Part of you is not enough. He's a jealous God and he will not compromise with you. You are not working with him. You work for him if you are in Christ. He will turn you around and he will have you do these things. He did it with Jonah and he does it with every single Christian today. Whether or not you've experienced it, it matters not. If God chooses to save you, he will do this work. You might think if you were a drinker beforehand, and I'm not against, I'm not preaching complete abstinence, but what I'm saying is if you were involved in drunken behaviour beforehand and then all of a sudden you were saved, you may leave that service and you may go to the pub, but I can guarantee that if you are truly saved, your drinking will not bring you pleasure. God will stop you. He will stop the joy that you once had in something so foolish and he will force you to hate it. Why? Because if you are in Christ, the scriptures tell us, you are a new creation. The things that you once loved, you no longer loved. The things that you once hated, such as God's word, you now have a passion for. There's an about face. There's a complete changing of behaviour. There's a complete changing of your mindset. And that's what has taken place in these mariners' lives that they recognise that they are working against God and that all of a sudden they have to submit, they have to be obedient. They've seen what Jonah's disobedience has done to him and they don't want it to come upon them. So they throw Jonah into the sea. And we're told in the last half of verse 15, in the last passage, that the sea ceased from its raging. But it wasn't only that the sea ceased from its raging, that those men who were just a few verses before had feared God exceedingly, fear God again. We're told the men feared the Lord exceedingly 
and then they responded. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. All of a sudden there's a change even in these men. You see, Jonah thinks he's running away from God. He thinks he's not going to do these tasks. But God has a purpose. And God puts him on that ship. Even though he was trying not to be a prophet, even though he was trying not to be a missionary or an evangelist, we may say, God puts him where he wants him. You may have come here this morning and you may think that you drove yourself here and that it was all your doing, but it wasn't. That's also not a popular thing today because everybody believes that they have a free will and that they can make all their own decisions and that they have their big boy pants on or something and that they're, they're the king of their own life and they can do all these things. And it's rubbish. If you're here this morning, it's because God, before the foundation of the world, predestined you to be here and it wouldn't go astray. That God is using the word this morning and he's using the feeble attempts by the preacher to either sanctify you and to make you more like Christ or he's causing you to have judgment heaped upon you this morning. As you listen to this and as you still do not repent and believe, he is causing judgment to be heaped upon you more and more and more and more. You will not have an excuse when you stand before God and say, I never heard these things. Because if you are here today, you have heard them. Whether or not you like them or you hate them, it doesn't matter. God put Jonah on that ship with a captive audience and these men would hear the truth and the Holy Spirit worked upon them and they feared God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And then they feared him even more when they saw the sea stop And then they acted. We're told after the sea was calm, they didn't just start rowing and say, oh, that was lucky. We must be really lucky. No, they feared God and they sacrificed. They stopped what they were doing and they sacrificed the Lord. We don't have to sacrifice today as Christians because the sacrifice was done on a Roman cross. But the sacrifice comes in the life of the Christian. That is not doing what you want to do. That is when you fear the living God, recognising that he is in control of everything and that you must turn from your sins. Here they turn from their sins, they offer a sacrifice to the living God and they take vows. We're not told exactly what those vows are, but I'm sure they were something along the lines of not returning to their false gods that when they'd met with the living God, everything had changed. And this is the same with the life of the Christian. Before you came to Christ, you may have been a drinker, you may have been a smoker, you may have been a horrible blasphemer. But the moment that you came to Christ, the moment that he saved you by his grace, those things were now repugnant to you. You couldn't continue in them. Why? Because God's chastening hand would be upon you. It would stop. Just as the waves stopped that day for that ship and as the waves stopped because Jonah was thrown into it, God will cause you to repent. God will cause you to hate the things that you once loved and it will happen. If it doesn't, you are not in Christ. 
If you love the things of the world and you love the things that God hates, you are not in Christ. I can tell you that with great assurity today. Why? Because God's word affirms that. You know, I meet these Christians constantly who blaspheme. They watch television and they take the Lord's name in vain, replicating these things. Something is wrong with somebody who claims to be a Christian and who takes God's name in vain. The word of God says that he will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. So Christian, if you're here today and you're guilty of this, repent this day. There is no place for blasphemy in the life of the Christian. Just as there is no place for these men to continue to worship their false gods. They had to stop. The game was up for Jonah and the game was up for them. Jonah could say, well, it's no longer my will. It's now God's will. I did it my way for a period of time. Now it's over. It's God's will. The only way for you to stop this is to punish me, says Jonah, to throw me into the sea. And when the men see this, it causes them to repent. This is a snapshot of the Christian life. You know, one of the most popular songs played at funerals today is I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. You know, I think this is the funniest thing ever. I have a hard time keeping a straight face when I say that. It's very funny that somebody would want Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, played at their funeral. Because do you really think you would want to end up in a box if you did it your way? Do you see the hypocrisy of this? If you did it your way, are you saying that you wanted to die? That you actually wanted to end up in front of all these people in a pine box? How ridiculous. No, you didn't do it your way. You may have sinned against God, but ultimately you did it God's way. God determined that the wind and the waves would blow a certain way and that the wind, the waves would come so far and no further. God determined what you would do, when you would do it, how you would do it, and all for his glory. You didn't do anything your way. And if you're here today and you believe that you are doing it your way, you are going to hell. It's not popular to talk about hell either, I know. But that's the truth of the matter. If you believe you're here and you're doing things your way, you are leading yourself second by second before the judgment of a holy God to lead yourself to hell. And you will not avoid it. These men could not avoid Jonah. They could not avoid God. You will not avoid God. No matter what God you have made in your own image, a God who you will not deal with according to his way, it doesn't matter. You will deal with God. He will deal with you. And as you're here today, you are either in Christ and you will not have judgment or you are in and of yourself and you will have judgment. Jonah says that the game is up for him, that the mariners, the game is up for them and they turn. I wonder what you're thinking this morning as I'm preaching here today. Do you just want this to be over with? I know that lots of people do. I wish I didn't have to preach so harshly towards you. But the problem is that many people think they can do things their way. They think they can meet God on their terms, learn something from Jonah, 
and learn something from these mariners because you won't. God will deal with you on his terms and in his way. It doesn't matter whether you run from me this morning. It doesn't matter whether you abuse me after this service. It makes no difference. Because the God who has revealed himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who has revealed himself in his word, doesn't matter to him what you think. He will deal with you. And so for you, Christian, who are here this morning, try and learn from Jonah. Try and learn from the mistakes of the preacher this morning. Try and learn, don't look to the world. Be prepared to look away from the world. Jonah was concerned with what others would think of him. He really was, and we'll see that as we go through. Don't be concerned with what others think of you. The Apostle says, let God be true and every man a liar. That's how we are to live as Christians. Don't look to the world and think, I wish I was like that, or I wish I had that body, or I wish I had that hair, or I wish I had that car. Don't do it. Look towards Christ and find your value in him, because aside from him, you are nothing. In him, you are valuable. You are precious. You are perfect in him. Don't look to the world, brethren. Look to Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is forever settled in heaven. We thank you that you have gave us, you've given us your word and that we are a blessed people for having it. We do pray that this morning that we would not take it for granted. Please forgive us for the times when we do. Forgive us for the times when we look at others and we see what they have and that we have not. Forgive us for times when we wish to be like others rather than like Christ. Lord, we pray you would forgive us for the times when we seek to do our own will, when we seek to have things our own way and to not live your commandments. Pray, Father, that this week that we would be encouraged that you would continue to begin that work that you began in us so long ago, that you would continue with this mighty work to make us more like Christ. Father, we pray for the unsaved, whether they be here or our friends or our family or our neighbours. We do pray that you would give us a great boldness to speak the truth. Lord, give us a boldness to speak the truth in love and to not fear man. Help us to stand in the days ahead, for we know that every day brings us more and more closer to you. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.